name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, make us worthy to pray with all thanksgiving. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but from evil in Christ Jesus our Lord. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okie dokie. Um, so today we're going to do John 2, um, which is two, like, uh, two scenes basically going on. Um, just as a very fast recap, because I like doing that because it helps solidify like what every chapter is about and, and, and to remember stuff. So the prologue we did the first week um, where we were talking about basically mortality versus immortality, things in their true nature versus things that are created. Um, and that one of the things that the Lord is trying to do is teach us how to, how to be right? Like what we were, what we were meant to be. And we got into John the Baptist and, and who, who Christ really is. And we, I'm not going to go through all of that again. Um, but we left off at the end of chapter one, where Christ has chosen his disciples. Um, and they had that awkward moment where the disciples are asking him, so like, where do you live? Um, and he said, come and see. Um, and they've now joined him. And he had that whole scene with Nathaniel. So John chapter 2 and the rest of this gospel is picking up where that's just normal. He has these disciples um, that follow him, that live with him, that go where they're going. And this chapter, we're going to be going to a wedding together. Um, and then actually to a temple, the temple, um, where we have a, a really happy scene between them all. Um, now, in St. John's Gospel, whenever he talks about the Jews, he's going to use the word the Jews a lot. Um, that usually is referring to the leadership. Um, and as we said, that this gospel is written, sorry, my head's itchy. Um, this gospel is, is, is written probably in a time where people were not very friendly um, towards the Christians. And so there was also, a, because they're kicked out of the synagogue around that time, um, that tone is probably being conveyed whenever the Jews um, are being said. Because actually there's a few times in the gospel where actually Christ is referred to as a Jew. So I don't think it's meant to be all Jews or always negative Jews, um, but it's meant to be mostly um, talking about the leadership in the temple. Um, so sometimes it's neutral, usually it's not. Um, and we'll get right into it. Actually, not right away. This gospel is the only gospel that talks about Cana, the, the city of Cana of Galilee. Um, it's not anywhere else. And the backdrop of this is very interesting because that Christ is being invited to a wedding is kind of interesting because I don't think we talk about God that way or Christ that way, the Lord incarnate that way. Um, where clearly they were either family, friends, or some kind of acquaintance, but there's relationships going on in the background that we don't hear about in the Gospels um, for Christ to have been invited. Um, and the invite list in those days aren't like today where you need to narrow it down to like whatever number of your guests are. Um, but you also wouldn't just invite anyone either. 
And so for Christ to be invited means he's, he's part of culture, he's part of society, he's got family relationships, um, those kind of things are, are going on too. Um, and it might be that, or we've got to, like weddings, okay, you guys probably know this from church, especially those of you young couples, where the minute you get married, half the parents are asking you, so, huh, where are the babies? When are the babies coming? Um, how come we don't have these babies, right? That's, that's a huge part of, of the culture. And so I'm saying that because you've got to remember that the association with weddings is fruit, children, okay? Um, especially in these times. And so in the last chapter, we're talking about what it meant to be a son of, of God or a son of the spirit. And so it's not surprising that we go to a wedding right away because the main association with weddings is actually new progeny. Um, so I, I, it's, I don't think it's coincidental um, that it's happened. And it's also not coincidental, I think, that we're going to see these empty pots of water almost as a symbol of um, the barrenness of the church, of the Old Testament church, that they were seen as having no fruit. Um, and that Christ is, is coming to, to change that. That's just a meditation. So before we start reading it, just have in your mind what brings us to Kana, right? It's this wedding, marriage, betrothal, um, promise of children, procreation. Um, we're going to come across the Lord's mother, St. Mary. Um, actually, she's not even named here. Um, we're going to look at what does she do? What does she look like? How does Christ treat her? Um, what does the Lord do? How is he interacting with women? How is he interacting with slaves, right? Because these are things that were a big deal in those times that our Lord's going to deal with in these chapters. Um, and to see how the Lord conducts himself. So let's read chapter two, um, and then we will uh, get into it. Okay. Name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the, the first of this, his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, where his mother and his brethren and his disciples, with his mother and his brethren and disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. The pastor of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers at their business. 
And making a whip of cords, he drove them all with the sheep and oxen out of the temple. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. You shall not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign have you to show for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And, and will you raise it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not trust himself to them, because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man. For he himself knew what was in man. Okie dokie. Sorry, I'm readjusting to uh, this whole um, Zoom thing. I've gotten used to in person, so forgive me if I'm uh, struggling a little bit. So we find ourselves starting off at this, this wedding. Um, on the first day, there's a marriage. On the third day. So this third day seems to be three days after the encounter that the Lord had just had in the last chapter um, with uh, the disciples. And hosts of weddings usually normally invite as many people as possible to come. And so it says that St. Mary has been invited, but that Jesus was also invited. So it's not clear whether through the family relationship or just on his own, because you've got to remember that the Lord right now isn't exactly famous. He hasn't done anything. There's no miracles attributed to him. Like there's, there's, there's nothing really going on there. Um, we can also see just from that first verse that these disciples have become regular, regular followers and they're not called apostles yet. They're not called apostles until they're sent out. Right now they're just, they, they're disciples because apostle means sent. Um, and so some of these disciples of his are people that have left John the Baptist um, to be with him. And probably they find life with Christ a little bit easier um, because St. John is like super ascetic um, and they're not having uh, to do that. And when they run out of wine, when the wine failed, they don't name. There's very little naming that happened in uh, the Gospel of John. Whenever they do, it's seen as a really big deal. Um, we, we meet the Samaritan woman, the man born blind, the woman person by the pool. Um, but we, we often don't actually get um, anybody's names. So St. Mary comes to the Lord and says, they have no wine. And the Lord says to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Um, now, wedding feasts in this time weren't like a one-day thing, right? So it's not like these people just poorly planned and they ran out of wine after a couple of hours. Um, basically, weddings were a really big deal. They could last up to a week where people would be in and out, spending time with the family. Um, they would drink, they would eat, they would feast, they would celebrate. Um, I'm not sure how many cultures still do that today. I'm, I'm aware that there's in some, some Indian culture um, that that's still a thing. But when you'd have this wedding, because it's going to be this long-term thing, you need to plan well. You need to have, make sure you had enough supplies and food. And it was a show of wealth. And it was a matter of honor that you could remember these honor shame concepts we talked about the very first week 
It's a matter of honor to be able to raise your head high and, and be the one to host and not need anything from anybody. Um, and so at the same token, it would make you look really, really bad, um, dishonorable, shameful, if you were not actually able to accommodate the guests that you invited. Um, and dignity and image and honor, these are very, very big things, honor more than, than dignity. Um, so these people look really bad and actually would be humiliating. And so it's, it's, it's a big deal, right? And that's why it'd almost be like, I don't know, you, invented, you invited 30 people to a restaurant, forgive me the analogy, and you made a big deal about inviting them. And then when it comes time to pay the bill, you either forgot your wallet or you have insufficient funds. Um, you just look bad, right? So it's that kind of bad. And St. Mary has become aware of it. And she's probably aware of it because the women and, and the servants would have been in their own area, more privy to those things. Um, and so she comes to the Lord and says, just a statement, they've got no wine. And people get surprised because the Lord's response to her is, woman, what have you to do with me? Um, and woman is like equivalent to ma'am today or my lady in, 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 in Shakespearean times. Um, so it's not a word that's disrespectful. At the same time, um, it's not a rebuke or an impolite term, um, or anything like that. Um, But it also doesn't seem like friendly, right? Um, which which some people might 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 find weird. But it doesn't seem like the Lord is telling her off, because that's what some people accuse him of. That's why I'm even saying that at all, um, of trying to put this big distance between his mother and himself, because he does use that 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 same term everywhere through the Gospel of John, as well as to St. Mary when he's on the cross, when he's being very compassionate towards her. So it just seems more likely that this is how the Lord spoke in general. Um, and if there's a distancing, it may be to show that his ministry is independent of this world of becoming, that his ministry is not dependent on, on social relationships, because the Lord actually turns family concepts upside down and loyalty concepts upside down, cultural concepts of, of wealth and family and dignity and honor and shame. He turns all those things upside down. So it may be that he's being very intentional of distancing himself from how people understood cultural ties to be. Because we also see a few verses ahead that St. Mary is going to be joining the disciples and being with him. So he's not treating her badly. Um, it is still surprising, though, to see him talk like that. Um, now, his what have you to do with me is a, the literal translation is what to me and to you. And this was an, an interesting expression. Um, we're going to get into the practical and how to live it and all that in a bit. I just I want I want the language and all that to come out more clearly so that we can like benefit and, and med meditate on some of those things. Um, saying that expression of what have I to do with you or, or what, more literally, what to me and to you, it can be used in a hostile way. And it has been used in the Bible in a hostile way. Um, that's one way of, of, of having it. Almost like, why are you bothering me? Um, 
but a more a more common usage at least in scripture seems to be saying what does this have to do with me it can even mean what does it have to do with either of us right that's not our issue um i can give you a bunch of biblical references i won't where that has been used in that way um and so what our Lord seems to be saying to her is, this isn't our concern, right? It's not our concern. It's not our issue, definitely not mine, that the, that the host has run out of wine, right? And, and him saying it's not my hour is saying, no, this is not the time for me to start, right? Because for him to start doing miracles, which it seems to be that she's expecting, um, that means this public work is going to begin right away because you don't go unnoticed when you do things like turning water into wine. Um, it's not a common event at most people's weddings. But at the same time, he's saying, okay, not the time, not our business. Um, it's a polite refusal. And there's no indication that Our Lady is being rebuked or, or, or told off. And then we see that St. Mary's response is so simple. He's just said, not my issue, not the time. And she turns around and looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And that reaction is very uh, telling, I think, of, of Our Lady of St. Mary. Um, this is, I think, a kind of trust that most of us lack. Um, she walks away with a firm hope, the firm hope and no talking, right? She's not running around. She's not blabbering at the Lord. She's not like petitioning the disciples. She's not making a scene. She literally just says whatever he says to do, do it. And she exits stage left, okay? It's not clear what she thought would happen or whether she was okay with nothing happening. And I'm not sure that we approach God like this when we want things right we tend to want to to control outcomes with god right if it was us i think we'd be more likely to say if you're really my son you should be doing this she didn't right we don't we don't tend to give room for even a refusal of, of our request saint mary's giving room for refusal gratifying not gratifying she literally just presents the problem walks away, she's fine with everything, right? And then we also tend to misinterpret either a refusal or a non-granting of a miracle from God as maliciousness, right? If we ask something from God and it doesn't happen, we either get really mad at God or we start to usually over-rationalize of, oh, he probably didn't do it for this reason or that reason, and we try and... Because our expectation is if I asked, he must do it. So if he didn't, either something's wrong with him or something's wrong with me or something's wrong with this scenario because that's the only way I can make sense of not getting what I want. St. Mary doesn't seem to be thinking like that, right? St. Mary seems to be just completely content with everything just being as it is and just saying, I'll let him know. He wants to do it, cool. He doesn't want to do it, no problem. Um, everybody's at the ready. I know a priest um, that I knew uh, growing up, um, 
he said something that I didn't make sense to me as much as a kid that today I really, really love and I try and emulate from him. But he used to always say, I don't pray for things for people. He's saying, I don't pray for things. He said, instead, I just elevate the image of that person in front of God. And just say, God, here they are. You do you. Um, which I think is very in line with what we're seeing um, from St. Mary here. Now, six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Sorry, my computer is freezing, but I wanted to show you what these jars uh, look like. One sec. If my computer will stop freezing. Okay. Okay. I don't know if this is freezing. I don't know if you guys can see or not. Um, I don't know what just happened. Um, can you guys see this jar? It says AP has started screen sharing. I don't think it's working yet. Sorry? It just says AP has started screen sharing on my... Okay, but you can't see it yet? Not yet, no. Okay. Sorry, guys. Oh, now it's working. All right, my computer is like 20 seconds behind me, um, which means that it's going to keep zooming for a long time before it stops. <laughs> um, all right, let me stop the share, if it will let me. Those, though, those are the kind of jars that we are, um, that we're talking about. Okay, I've been kicked out of word. I'm so sorry, guys. Um, Once I can see my notes, we can start again. Okay, so these are those are the six stone jars, okay? They're humongous, they carry a lot of water. And actually St. John is telling us that these jars were standing there and they're there for the rites of purification. So remember again, from that very first talk, we talked about ritual purity um, and all of those kind of things. Um, People don't like dirty things, right? That's not something they're supposed to use. So it's already a bit of a statement um, that they're using that because that's not water you use. It's dishonorable to use that kind of water. And yet God is about to use something that's seen as dirty um, and a source of dishonor to honor the host, right? Because the, the host's honor is being threatened because he has no wine. And the Lord is flipping this upside down. It would be very shameful, as we said, not to be able to offer the guests anything. So then Jesus says to them, verse 7, fill the water jars with water, and they filled it up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. And they took it. And then the steward of the feast, as you all remember. Um, so the steward of the feast is like this master of ceremonies, if you will. The family needs to not deal with... Um, the problems of of the of the wedding. They need they don't need to worry about food. They're like the reception hall when you hire them, only they're in the home. 
So they bring the steward the wine to taste because he's been entrusted by the host to just take care of stuff. So the steward goes um, to the to the family that's having the, the feast, the bridegroom himself, and you're saying, why did you leave the best wine till now? This is the best wine, right? Because usually if the, fe- if the wedding is going to be a week long, you put all the good stuff out at the beginning when the party's hot and everybody's there. And as everybody gets bored of the party and the time and everything, you can put the cheap stuff out um, near oh. the end, right? And so this, this steward is saying, why would you wait till now to do this? Which also shows that we're near the end of the wedding, um, if this is what's being being said. So this thing that the Lord has done is very expensive, okay? So that ends the story of the miracle, right? He's turned water into wine by merely just saying it, right? Actually, he didn't even say anything. Like, he didn't even say water become wine, but by mere command of, fill these and just willing it, it's become, keyword become, something else to get back to that being and becoming thing. But the sign that the Lord performed was expensive. Okay. It's what's going to lead to all of the conflict that we're going to see. Now that he's done a miracle, spotlights on him, right? Spotlights on him right away. Which shows you how even in his willingness to do this, even though he said, this isn't the time. The incarnate Lord put himself at the mercy of his kids. Right? It's almost like a parent has said, you know, this isn't how I'd run it, but that's how you want it. I'll do it. That's what the Lord did. Right? His mother said, hey, could you help out in an indirect way? He says it's not the time, but then he does it anyway. But it's also kind of cool to meditate on that God took like a trivial thing. They ran out of wine, right? It's not like it was going to be the end of the world. It wasn't going to be the end of the world that they had no wine. But God took a small thing like that and turned it into a source of comfort and joy, right? I'm saying that because spiritually, I think sometimes when we deal with God, we're looking for the really like big showy things, right? We're looking for like the magic show, um, right? In this case, probably we would have wanted the Lord to either give them cash or donate wine or suddenly 50 people arrive at the door with 20 gallons of, of wine, something like that. But that's not how the Lord works. The Lord wanted to comfort them. The Lord wanted to bring them joy. The Lord wanted them to have stuff, right? But he did it quietly. He did it in the background where only women and servants, the people that nobody cares about in that world. He did the miracle in that hangout. He didn't do the miracle in the rich people hangout. He didn't do the miracle in the public sphere, in the place where all the hot shots are hanging out. Because we're told explicitly that only the servants knew what had happened with this water. Until, of course, they tell them after what happened. But the Lord doesn't work in this public thing. He's not a show-off. God's not showy. And I'm sure he was just happy that they were happy. Right? That was it to him. Right? He wasn't 
making a point. And so we see in this, in this first miracle that by his word, he just commanded and the waters changed. Which remember that we said the book of John could be called the book of Genesis. It's the first line of the book, right? Is that we're seeing the same thing that happened being of Genesis, that God speaks and things become. God spoke and water became and it became something else. And so this is not an accident that this is happening. This is the gospel writer trying to tell you this is a divine person. It's not a regular human, right? This is divine because by his words, he's able to change. The other thing that I thought would be cool just to, just to meditate on, um, again, this is awkward for me because it's all online and not in person because I would be wanting to invite you guys to, to say some stuff right now, but um, it's kind of cool to know that God is with us at weddings, right? It's really nice to see that God went where people went. He went to a wedding and he rejoiced with them. And there were dances, there were folk dances at this wedding. I'm sorry, they were not sitting there prim and proper, um, everybody clasping themselves like, like gently. No, this was a real wedding. And he rejoiced with them. And I think we sometimes divorce God um, from things that are joyful and happy as though they're events that, that he wouldn't like. But just as in Genesis, he said, be fruitful and multiply. God commanded sexuality. God commanded procreation. And that was before the fall, right? The order to be fruitful and multiply was before the sin of Adam and Eve. That the Lord does rejoice even in this wedding, the symbol of which is fruit, right? That the wedding, everybody understood, forgive me for going there. Everybody understood at the end of the wedding that they go and they consummate the, the wedding by, by having intercourse, right? The Lord is, is not saying, that's dirty, I don't associate with those. The Lord went and blessed it, right? It's telling you, telling you how different sometimes God is from how we are. Um, that we don't need to be afraid of God being happy of being joyous and going to, to weddings, right? I think we've got to be careful sometimes not to project on God our own moods and personalities. This then is the first of his signs, verse 11, that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him, okay? Now, as we said in, in one of the talks, remember which one um, of the three that we've done so far, Signs mean something different in the Gospel of John. Other Gospels talk about miracles. St. John talks about works and signs. Okay. What a sign is meant to be is that something you can't see is present and happening. And with St. John, it seems like there needs to be a belief in God because of the sign. Right? So... This water became wine. So somehow God was present because something happened that you couldn't see. You couldn't see the water becoming wine, but somehow it happened. That's the sign, right? Um, and we'll get more into that as we, as we progress. Um, but now St. John shifts us to a whole other scene that we're about to get to, which is 
going to the temple. And this scene is ugly, um, which um, we'll get into. So the Jerusalem temple, as we talked about a little bit in the first talk, um, the Jewish temple is the symbol of Jewish both nationalistic and religious identity. Okay, um, think of Vatican, because the Vatican is also um, considered as a nation state, right? And so Vatican to a Catholic is a state and religious headquarters, okay? That's what the temple is to the Jews because it's where God speaks from, where God reigns from, but it is also the symbol of the glory of Israel because of their religious identity and their national identity, but also why when people would take over the countries he talked about, why they would be quick to desecrate the temple. Um, and so that's why for the Jews even more did they care a lot about the dignity and honor of the temple. I shouldn't use the word dignity, mainly just honor. And we said originally already that the original temple of Solomon had been destroyed by the Babylonians. It was later rebuilt. Um, but King Herod that we talked about in the first talk, um, don't know if it's, it's not recorded, um, he had renovated that temple. And as we're going to find out in a few verses, it took 46 years of renovations. Okay. Um, and there is an expectation of the Jews that in the Messianic age, when the Messiah came, the temple would be purified and become the center all over again. Um, and so that's the backdrop of our Lord entering it. They're expecting the Messiah to possibly rebuild it, at the very least purify it, right, and to change it. Um, and we're going to see that the Lord does that, but definitely not in the way that they were expecting. Okay, so they're coming to the temple for Passover. And the central Jewish feast of national identity is Passover because Passover is when they were liberated from being slaves in Egypt to being liberated to be their own people. So Passover is even a bigger deal now that they are in an occupied state, that the Romans are now there. So Passover is going to remind them of, remember, God saved us from this kind of living before. When the Messiah comes, it's going to happen again, right? It has something really deep to it. Um, and Passover actually originally was celebrated locally, right? It was celebrated in their homes. Um, and then eventually it got moved to the temple. Um, it could be that St. John wants to link us to the Lamb of God imagery again, because that's what's going on in Passover. We're not really sure. But you've got to remember this temple stands as this physically imposing, gigantic structure in the middle of the city. Okay, this is the White House in Washington. Okay, this is um, Parliament buildings in, in, in Ottawa, right? This elevated thing on top of the hill where everybody can see it, that tourists when they come are going to point and say, there's, there's the monument, right? I just want you to get into it to know what's going on. This is the scene, right? You've got hustle and bustle and you've got thousands of Jews making their ways to Jerusalem from wherever they live because now they celebrate in Jerusalem and they're expecting this great party. It's like Easter for us. You put on your best, 
right? You invite all your friends, you spend lots of money, you wear nice clothes, right? You do all these things. This is what's going on for them. And they are not going just anywhere. They're going to the temple where God speaks from the Holy of Holies, from the Dubar, right? And so this is a big event, okay? This is a really, really big event. And this is the meeting place of all culture. And the Romans are going to be on guard for security because you've got that backdrop that we're talking about of people trying to rebel. It's a major, major feast, okay? Um, it's almost like the kind of security maybe that you think about for the G8 summit. Um, or, the, or maybe the kind of security you might care about for, for um, Yom Kippur or for like in, a, in, a, in an Arab state um, and events like that. And in this temple, okay, um, there's five things that seem to be lacking from Jewish, like what Jewish writers say are lacking from that temple, okay? It's missing the ark, okay? After the temple is destroyed, the ark goes missing. The ark is missing. And it's missing divine fire that used to inhabit the temple. It's missing the glory of God, the Shekinah, as we talked about before, the Holy Spirit, and it's missing something called the Umim and the Thumim. If you, those of you who are, I think, um, there's a group of you reading the Old Testament together, um, I saw from the WhatsApp group, you'll remember um, that the high priest had to have on him the Umim and the Thumim that somehow they used as to divine things, to figure out God's will about things. So those things were missing from the temple when Christ had come. And those were all things that were seen as a big deal that should be there, okay, um, when, when, when the real temple is restored. Why am I saying this? It's not just to give you random history, okay? But it's that people in this time um, are seeing that the temple is lacking. Some people think it's because the Romans are so horrible. Other groups are saying it's because we were so sinful that God left, Um and actually, some of the Jews, the rabbis, took it so far as to say that the absence of a pure temple would be the source of death for the Jews. Okay, So all of this is, is, is to say that the Lord coming to the temple and taking action against it is actually not as shocking as we might have thought. right? Because we tend to think of the Lord entering the temple and just spazzing out. But actually, this has a context um, to it. So let's get to it. The Lord comes down to Capernaum, verse uh, 12, um, with his mother. Again, St. Mary's joining them, uh, if you pay attention to the small details, um, as well as his brethren, which are probably his cousins and his family members and his disciples. And they stay for a few days in Capernaum. I, it's kind of cool to just realize that sometimes our Lord just chilled. Right? Like they, they did that. Um, and then they are now going to the temple for the Passover, which is the first of three Passovers that we'll see in the Gospel of John. Um, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers at their business. 
Okay, so there was different currencies in the different villages and towns and things like that. And so the temple, when you wanted to buy the stuff you needed for sacrifice, um, you would see a money changer um, because the money changer could give you a, a currency, a unified currency to buy your stuff. It's like your foreign exchange um, little desk going on. And the Lord's reaction is clearly not everybody else's reaction who just go about buying stuff. The Lord's reaction is that he goes and makes a whip of cords and he dries them all out with the sheep and the oxen out of the temple. And then he goes over and he pours out the coins of the money changers and he tosses over their tables and he tells those selling the pigeons, get rid of these things, take these things away. You will not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. Okay, and that's referring to Psalm 69, specifically verse 9, that says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Why is this happening? As we said before, you've got to put your mind in the, in the head of a Jewish person in the first century that are waiting for something to happen. They're looking for signs. And they're making connections. And that's why the gospel writer is doing this for us. He's saying anybody who's read Psalm 69 will remember this image of the suffering servant depicted in there that had messianic overtones. This was a, a psalm that was interpreted to also be about the future Messiah. Okay. Um, and so that if you went to that psalm, then you'll start making these associations between Christ and the suffering servant. Right, where you would see Christ as throughout the whole that whole psalm as somebody who suffers on behalf of the people. You'd also take it in context of Christ is concerned about the temple and that that temple that many people thought meant needed to be purified or restored. That maybe that's what's happening right now. Okay, it's like oh, when I go to this psalm, I'll make the connection of the temple needs to be purified by the Messiah. Oh, is this the Messiah? Okay, that's what's going on in their heads, right? Um, Which psalm is it, Abuna? Uh, psalm 69. And the verse specifically for that part is verse 9, but that whole uh, psalm is, is considered a psalm of the suffering servant. And so it would also make people start to think, okay, maybe... Um, God is here to restore the temple. It would make other people say that psalm that he's referring to also talks about the suffering servant being killed by his own family, by his own kin, by his own nation. And so anybody who is really like Psalm Savvy, savvy that's reading this gospel would be like, oh, that's what happens to Jesus too. As St. John said in chapter one, he comes unto his own and his own receive him not. So if a person is reading in light of the Old Testament, that's why it's so good for people to read the Old Testament and see, because it's very compelling to see these links that happen, okay? Is that all these things are coming together in this one person, but there's a part that also would scare them. Because here, there's, an, there's a, 
a vision of restoring God's people to proper worship. But we're seeing that proper worship, according to St. John, is becoming in the person of Jesus Christ, which is not comfortable. For the geeks out there, I, I just I like to geek out a little bit. Um, it's interesting because this, the Greek that this is written in, um, it can have two meanings. It can mean the zeal within me will consume the temple, right? Which is how most people take it, which is this translation that we read from has, and most of your translations have. But the Greek can also be translated as, I will be consumed by zeal um, in your temple, which could refer to the Lord being killed. But that's just bonus information. Verse 14. The Jews then said to him, okay, so you've got to picture this scene. Can you imagine someone walking into church? Screaming and yelling at people who are dressed inappropriately. Um, flipping over pews. Trashing the mekteba. Kicking out the treasure. And saying, this ain't church. That's what the Lord has done. <laughs> okay? And the people are rightfully tripping. Right? And so they're coming to, 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 to Christ and saying... What sign do you have to show us for doing this? Like, based on what do you think you can do this? Right? On what authority do you have? And then Jesus answers them saying, destroy this temple. They think the building. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews are like, who is this guy? Right? Because remember, in their own time, King Herod had just finish the renos on this project, right? That took 46 years. And so they say to him, hey, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you think you can do it in three days, right? So now it's like, what, like this guy, like what's, something's not right, okay? Um, and now keep in mind, they're not so shocked at the concept of destroying the temple they're actually more surprised at him saying he'll build it in three days because of all of that stuff that I just talked about, right? Of saying, yeah, maybe, maybe the Messiah would actually demolish the temple. Maybe actually we do need to rebuild the temple. That's not crazy. What's more crazy to them right now is this idea that he's going to raise it in three days. But he's not talking about it, as we're told right away. But he spoke with the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word of Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man for he himself knew it was in man. Right. So it's really cool here to see the, the, the gospel writers say we didn't get it. Right. Sometimes like I think we do a lot of this sometimes as servants, as, as, as anything, not even just as servants, right? Where whenever something happens, that's a big deal. We're like, you know what? I kind of was suspicious it was going to happen, but I ignored it for this and this and this. Where we, we like to play like, we got it, but we were just kind of, you know, not sure. Whereas I really like the authenticity of the disciples where they just say, no, we had no clue what was going on. We didn't get it, 
right? We only were able to make sense of it after the fact when he rose to be like, oh, that's what he meant um, when he said it. But in this last section that we just read, again, there's language issues. I just want you to see of, of what the gospel writer is doing. He really wants you to know that this is God. How? He says, people believed in him, but our Lord wasn't and trusting them. He wasn't too worked up about it. Why? This is a part that if you don't understand the language, you wouldn't pick up on. He says, because he knew all men. He knew himself. He knew what was in man and needed no one to bear witness of man. Okay. Because Jewish people recognize that prophets could sometimes know thoughts. But only God knew hearts. Only God. And so for them to say, for them to write, because Jesus knew what was in man versus just the thoughts of man. He knew what was in man, right? This is a big deal. Because it's saying, this isn't a man. This is God. Now, this incident in the temple is really interesting okay it's not what we're expecting and i don't think it's what we're expecting today right that you think that jesus comes to this temple he's god this temple belongs to god he's going to be excited he's going to chill with his people he's going to reign from a royal throne right because the only thing wrong about the temple in their mind is roman control and the lord is like no 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 i I don't like this whatsoever because what's happening right now is these two worlds are colliding. The world of pure becoming, okay, this world of things that are made, this carnal world, the world of honor in a monetary sense, this world of, of glory in a secular sense, all these things is colliding with him who is. And it's a heated conflict that is not going to go away throughout the rest of gospel and has never gone away throughout the whole of time. It's still the conflict we're in with the world right now. The word became flesh, the is became, and he's encountering the pure wrong of the world. The pure wrong of the world that became. The stuff that's killing the world, money, power, position, lies, dishonesty, it's, it's touching the word incarnate and it wants to destroy him and it's not going to be able to overcome him. And that's why every, every, every interaction between the temple and Christ is going to be contentious. All three Passovers, the Gospel of John, are going to be very contentious. Every time he goes to the temple, for whatever reason, it's going to be ugly. Okay? Um, and Jesus' body, what we're picking up on right now, is going to become the new temple. It's going to be the new place of worship. This is why you worship in the Orthodox Church 
centers around Jesus's body, his soma, not his sarks. Everything will be about being the body. Jesus is the temple. He is the word that makes things, that creates things, that allows things to become. And he is, is in the world of is, in the bosom of the Father. And if the temple had done what the temple was supposed to do, the speaking place of God, the dwelling place of God, the earthly bosom of the Father, then God would have spoken from there. But the temple wasn't having that happen. Why? It was corrupted. It was corrupted. And as soon as you create a physical, as soon as you try and capture God, put him in a box, right? Shove him into something. You're no longer in the bosom of the Father. You're in your own bosom, whatever it is that you created. It doesn't mean a place can't be in the bosom of the Father. It's not what we're saying. It's just that it's so easy when you try and make God sit in a thing for you to have just created another thing that's part of this world that isn't God. And so you might then see something and not believe it, right? Because here's the Lord in front of them, and they're not going to believe it. Some do for a little bit. But because of these boxes, God can stand right in front of you and do all sorts of bizarre things that are supernatural and crazy and nobody would ever be able to do. And yet you could see that right in front of you and not believe. Because you're trying to make him match your concocted world of becoming instead of trying to understand the world that is. So step back now. Let's just meditate for a bit and then open up to questions, comments, your meditations. I want to step back and look at this chapter spiritually. Okay. We get so lost in the system sometimes that we forget what things are supposed to be. And I'm talking about be in that first sense of chapter one, the prologue, things that are the way that they're intended. And just as God is, God just simply is. He is what he is. He is the I am. He made other things be. I know this sounds philosophical. I'm going to dumb it down in a second. And the, the question, the right question that we always need to ask is, if everything that we are was made, then the right question to always ask is, what are we supposed to be? How are we supposed to be? What is the mode of our being? What is, where, what should we be? Okay. And that's this whole paradigm of the gospel of St. John is talking about. That's the question always being asked, right? Of how are things in the world of is, how are things supposed to be versus how are they actually, what have we made them? 
okay? And then, and then we can find out how things are supposed to be. Then we understand that choice is what creates this conflict between how things should be and what they are. It's always choice. So in this chapter, what we're seeing is that people forgot that they invented the temple. They forgot that the temple was never made by God. God never demanded a temple. God never asked for a temple. God even delayed the making of a temple. So they forgot that they invented the temple for God. They forgot that the temple wasn't the main place of life for most people. What do I mean by that? I mean that people were just living. They weren't living in the temple. They were living in their houses. They were living in their villages. They were living with each other. They were living on their farms. They were living with one another. And then they made the temple. But once they made the temple, they invented the temple. What did they start demanding of people? Time, energy, presence, money. And suddenly the house of God wasn't really the house of God. It became a place where people operated in God's name. And there was very little God going on in there. A danger I think we're in ourselves all the time. And then that became the norm. You go in, you do your business, you do your thing. And so now when that gets challenged, the Lord is entering and saying, what are you doing here? If this is my house, if this is the house of God, is this what it's supposed to look like? But the people's reaction is not to say, what do you mean? What should it be? Why are you saying that? They say, who do you think you are to challenge what we do? The temple is now about them. They're not asking questions of truth. They're actually just asserting their own autonomy and their own authority. They don't even really ask, what do you mean? They just assume it. Now think of the state of the people that led them to that in the first place. It's when they stopped being excited. Please think very carefully on this, about anything in your own life. It's when they stopped being excited about what the temple what is, what its actual meaning was. And instead, wanted to make it something else. What do I mean by that? The minute you stop liking something for what it is and want it to be something other than what it is, you just don't like the thing itself. And you're not acknowledging that. This is the paradigm. This is the, the thing that's going on in the Gospel of John. We're so obsessed with the becoming, with material, right? That we, we, we don't delight very much in how things are. 
What does that mean? We look at things in general in life and think about how can we make them better? When we talk about situations, we talk about what needs to be done to make the situation best or better. What it is, is never good. We want it to become something other than what it is. We're rarely content with what is, and to be honest, we're often not content with even the thing that we want it to be, but we're not excited about how things are. If I think church should be a particular way, without regard for what church is supposed to be, I can hate it. If I think marriage is supposed to be a particular thing, other than what it is, I might hate it. I'm trying to say is we get lost in our own thoughts about how things ought to be. Instead of asking, is there something it is supposed to be? And then saying, and, and how do I like that? The source of every discontent, any lack of happiness in your life, 100% is where you are is not where you want to be. You don't accept things that are. And because you can't accept it, you want to change it, you're discontent because you don't like where you are. It's very simple. Very, very simple. But another thing that we can see from what's happening in this temple that I think is very relevant for our own lives, my own life anyway, is that sometimes we get lost in the motions. And so the thing that we're at becomes meaningless. And it's not because it doesn't have meaning, it's because of me. Cheesy analogy, okay, we have family dinner. We say we have family dinner because we always just have family dinner and we have no idea why we have family dinner. What is our natural tendency? We're gonna start questioning the functionality of family dinner when I don't like it anymore. That's one extreme. Or the opposite is that I'm gonna only do family dinner because we always do it. Okay, but when I question the functionality, it'll make me ask, what good is family dinner? What has family dinner done for me? Why can't I just eat on my own? Well, that's, that's the question I'm trying to get at. If you don't stop and say, hey, guys, why do we have family dinner again? What was the point? Why are we doing this? Is there something that is supposed to be? If I don't have the answer to that, then I'll have that question of what's the point of this? not know the point, and then walk away and feel really justified and smart. We have to ask the question of why and how did it become? And that's what the Gospel of John is about, of saying that God became for a reason, and we became for a reason, and that when we stopped being the way that we were supposed to become, we lost life. And the one who is has become in order to give that life. 
in order to fix it, in order to show you why family dinner, in order to show you true worship, in order to show you real existence, in order to show you real life, real thought, real life, real joy, real being, where you can actually be full of joy just in the state of being, that's why the word has become, right? That's the beauty of it. And Christ himself will answer those questions as we move along. The last thing I'm just going to put out there, maybe it's just something to think about throughout the week, is just like we were commenting on, it's cool that God went to a wedding with his people. Maybe we should also think about the mindset of for his disciples. It says the disciples went to the wedding with Christ. Think about throughout your week and hopefully all time, do I go with Christ places? Do I go with Christ to work? Do I go with Christ to play soccer? Do I go with Christ to play among us? Do I go with Christ to pay FIFA? Because Christ is with us and he enjoys them with us and he loves them with us, right? I think that we, we want to put God, just like what we're seeing in this chapter, we want to place God only in the temple. We're putting God in that box over there. But God is not in the box. God is in all things and fills all places, right? And if I can start seeing that, I might even learn how to enjoy myself with God, to laugh with God, to joke with God, to eat with God, to cry with God, everything with God. Because that's what we're going to see throughout the gospel as well. We'll see how the disciples continue to be as they are with Christ and how their being with him is what transforms them, right? That we need to remember that we are with the Lord, right? That if we're his disciples to do all things with the Lord, to go out place with the Lord, there's no place God doesn't go um, because he is ours and we are his. To him be glory now and always the age of all ages. Amen. Um, any questions, comments, criticisms? Um, sorry, as I said last time, I'm I'm struggling with this and I know it might be really on the boring side. So please, 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 please feel free to give me some uh, advice on making it more relevant and, and palatable. When I had a quick question about, <clears throat> it wasn't really covered part of what you said today, but it's related to the chapter. Okay. Um, I might be outside of the, of your scope, but I know that um, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus leaves immediately after his baptism to be tempted in the wilderness and fast 40 days. Yeah. And here on the third day after his baptism, the second day is when he's meeting with his disciples and um, he's at the wedding of Count of Galilee. Mm -hmm. What do you know about reconciling those or are they irreconcilable? Um, there's a whole bunch of views on that um, because... This is also the only gospel where Christ goes to the temple three times. Um, whereas in the synoptics, it's actually only once. And so there's people who think it's irreconcilable. There's some who 
um, are saying that St. John is just presenting the event early for a particular reason. Um, I'm of that particular view. Um, I think that, um, and I'm saying, I'm just saying my opinion because there's not a, a dogma about it. There's not a standard. Um, it seems to me and my personal view that St. John is placing it here because he wants to show the clash of light and dark from the beginning. He wants to show that his own, his own are the problem. As he said in chapter one, his own received him not. That the very place of holiness became a place of darkness. And that it sets the tone of the whole conflict of the Gospel of John from the beginning. Because he also doesn't just ignore the temptation. He also ignores um, the nativity and all of those things. So it seems to me like he just wants to right away get into the world's a mess. And we hated him. And this is how light is going to shine on our darkness. But those are just personal views. I was speaking, referring specifically to what, about the... Um the wedding because it says on the third day mm -hmm. he was at the wedding of Count of Galilee but in the synoptic gospels the third day would have been up on the mountain when he was no busy. no but the third day as we said at the beginning is referring to three days after the calling of the disciples after that scene with Nathaniel mm -hmm. so I don't see those two as in conflict at all because he starts off right away with his ministry um because he's already chosen the 12 when this has happened. Or he's already, sorry, he hasn't chosen the 12. He already has disciples with him when this scene has occurred. So from the baptism to the wedding, how many days have passed? We don't know. Um, because the three days seems to refer to that scene with Nathaniel at the end of chapter one. Okay. And so we don't know in relation to, to, to those events when those happen. Okay, so the third day is referring to an event after the baptism. Not from the baptism. Right. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. There are some commentators that try and place it from the baptism, um, but there's no reason to, to view it. Um, actually, um, I can message you after if you want, Peter. Yale, Anchor Yale commentary spent some time on it, um, as well as um, Craig Keener, who's a great, great scholar um, on this gospel. If you want, I can send you sections because there's a long discussion about the whole three-day business if you'd like sure that'd be awesome thank you thank you <laughs> anyone else have any thoughts or even like ideas on how to live some of these concepts i have a thought of you know slash question um that is mainly related, but perhaps a little bit not. Um, the whole idea of um, us uh, wanting to live in this space of constant newness and um, upgrading everything um, and how this kind of pulls us away from the reality of what is, I wonder if uh, and this is something I, I struggle with personally in terms of prayer and things like the Agveya and things like that. Um, something I personally struggle with is the repetition of it all, how it's essentially the same every day. Um, and I think part of what I struggle with with that is, well, if it's the same every day, then at some point, like sometimes, you know, you kind of 
lose the connection with the words or maybe get too used to them. Um, and I find myself sometimes searching for new prayer or like a new way to pray uh, in certain ways. And, and so I wonder if there's something to be said for the solidity of having prayer be repetitive that way of almost kind of pulling us back and grounding us in, well, this is what is, he is who he is, how he is. And, and um, that we should uh, come into that space of like re-recognizing that consistently. Mm. That's really nice. Actually, that's, that's on point. Like to, to borrow your example, and I don't know if I'll really be answering your question as much as piggybacking off of it. Um, uh, did I just lose everybody? I don't know what just happened. Is this Zoom still running? Can someone speak? I think you're good. Okay, sorry. My You're signed out. I am? I was just being facetious. I'm okay. Kidding. I'm kidding. All right. I was like, wait a minute, but how do you tell me? Okay. Sorry. Um, to piggyback off what you're saying is that I think we forget what prayer is. And that's what I mean is that we should always ask, what is it? Right? So when prayer becomes an activity and nothing more than an activity, then yeah, eventually it's like, well, this is a really boring activity. I don't like it. Right? Whereas if I put it in back into the question of like, what is, what is prayer? Okay, it's literally just communication. It's being in one another's presence in some form. It's, it's, it's dialogue, it's talking, right? Then I'll re recognize that the goal of it, and why do I pray? Because I can talk to my creator and I don't have to, per se, because I'm already always going to be in his presence, but it's a particular way of communicating. So then it becomes like, oh, okay, so then what is the point of Ikbeya? And then I can recognize, okay, well, what is Igbeya? What was it made for? And that's what I mean is asking those questions of what is the right becoming of a thing? What was it that made the Igbeya become an Igbeya? And it was like, oh, because we would like to be able to have this kind of conversation. Once we start thinking like that, right, um, then prayer becomes actually a whole lot easier because I'm not going to be worked up about different things in my prayer life because their prayer, right? So what I mean by that is if I'm friends with somebody and I'm bored with my friend, that doesn't take away from the nature of my friendship. I'm just bored right now, right? Or I'm in a bad mood and I don't feel like talking. That's okay. It's not something wrong with the activity. I'm, I'm, I'm sidetracking a little bit. What I'm trying to get at is I'll know what the thing is for and I'll be chill with it of being like, oh, so then how come I'm not excited to be with you right now? And then once I have that right question, I will have a better way of arriving at the answer where it's like, oh, maybe it's because I'm self-absorbed or no, maybe it's because I'm just in a bad mood or oh, because I'm reciting some script that I don't even understand. And so I'm not actually talking to you. And so I hate talking to you because apparently whenever I talk to you, I have to read a script and I don't want to read a script. Right. All of these are different things that can become possible um, by coming at the, the right question of what is it supposed to be? Right. It's that question that we've been talking about for the last like two months of saying, what's the design? What is something meant to be? Because what does health look like? Because when I'm healthy, 
I'll feel fine. And then I'll also be able to recognize when I'm not fine. I don't know if that addresses what you're saying, but I'm, I'm actually more piggybacking off of you than, than just going to add something to that crossed my Please. mind to connect to what you were saying before, Abuna. That like that the thing that's significant about Dagbeya is that it's basically a reconfiguration of the Word of God, and it's saturated with the Scripture in a way that you're using something that is constant and represents the isness of God, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So you are using these terms and and phrases and passages that have been handed out for whatever thousands of years by God to the church as something that's something you can depend on is dependable that you can use to, you know, catalyze your prayer, so to speak, or to launch out into the deep as Christ tells Peter. But it's always a starting, a stepping stone into that kind of experience it's never meant to be something that ties you down but it can also become a habit where you're just reading the text and you're not getting any anything out of it but i can definitely see how the connection that olivia made about um being something that's representative of that being of god there's a a certain solidity in the prayer that doesn't stay that doesn't move around but i just add that even like in general no matter how creative you get with something, you always have to fall back on some form of repetition, even if it's very minimal, because you're still using the same words, the same vocabulary, the same language, whatever it might be. So there's always this tension between change and constancy. And the Bible is always the same thing that we go back to. But even then, even if we're using the same words, the same verses, we're coming and discovering new things and reading it anew every single time. So that there's always going to be, no matter what direction you head towards, there's always going to be a tension between repetition and change. So neither are bad. And I don't think that Agbeya is supposed to be a way of, you know, stifling change or variety or a dynamic experience of prayer. Agreed. Agreed and well said. And I'm saying if we can come back to what is it, right, then we'll know how to use it because it's something that was made, just like the temple, right? God wasn't saying no more temple, right? He's just saying have right temple, right? So the same thing with those things. If we can ask that question, um, then we'll be able to, to to fix that. There's a question online can you give us some practical tips on how not to approach the church building as just a building of worship the building we have built for our community to gather but the house of god the bride of christ what does it mean to me and how can i avoid making it a place that responds to my needs becoming what i want it to be just like you said at the temple i think it's by by exactly what you just wrote by by even just recognizing that lack of mindset right if i go to church being saying what does church do for me it means that i don't understand what church is right the church is literally just a physical place we we could definitely still be church without a building we could meet in a field we could meet on a beach we could meet almost anywhere we we need buildings because they're convenient right but that that what we've done in the church we've just consecrated a space for the assembly church means assembly and so we're not church when we're not if we're not the people 
right? And the people come around their head, which is God. So if I don't know that, then I'm going to go to church thinking, yeah, 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 here I am, like, to do this thing. Or I might think that Christ is saying, I want you to come here and say nice things to me. He never said that. Right? It's not where Christ said, hey, come here and also give me your money. He doesn't do anything with your money. There is no physical currency in heaven to my knowledge. Right? So it's by starting off with having the right mindset of we are not ourselves without God. We are made. So we're coming together as the people of God and we're recognizing one another that they're all my body. I belong to them and they belong to me. And that when I go there, it's not about what I take, even though you will take, you take his body, which is the source of your being, but you also take community, right? You also are supposed to be there to lift one another up, to give to people, to give comfort, to give time, to give attention, to, to be able to see each other as you are, that you carry throughout the week, then you'll, you're also there to say, let's come together and show our concern for everybody in existence because we don't live for ourselves. I'm going to be less selfish by going and saying, let's pray for the poor. Let's pray for the needy. Let's pray for the captives. Let's pray for the those who are, who are in captivity by barbarians, which never made sense to me until I saw ISIS. Let's pray for famine. Let's pray for unity. Let's pray for peace. Let's pray for our leaders. Right? It's we're saying, let's not be selfish. Let's come together and wish each other well. Don't you always wish that people, when you're down, would be with you? Don't you wish that when you have a problem, that people are concerned for you? Right? And so once I start thinking about it in that way, when I enter that building and it's just a building, because God dwells in it and he dwells in me and dwells in every place, but that we've, we've just simply consecrated a place to worship in for God to be with us and that he's in regardless then I'll start shifting my mentality when I go there. Because now I'm not going saying what's in it for me, even though there is something in it for me. But then I'm going in it for, oh, because this is how we're supposed to be as the people of God. So practically, I would say, before you go to church every week, ask those questions. Who am I here for? What is church? Ask those questions. Practically, ask those questions. Who do I need to pray for? Who do I know that's sick? Who do I know that's got a problem? Who is down? Let me pay attention to people who are there, not there, to figure out who I need to outreach. Right? Let me think about who looked really, really happy to congratulate and rejoice with them. Who looks like they're really down? Let me pay attention to that woman with the young child who wishes that I could carry her kid for 10 minutes because she's exhausted, right? If I start thinking about those things, these are all practical things, it will be different. And then to also to think about with sincerity, what does Eucharist mean? If I can every week think about what does Eucharist mean, I'll every week have more and more reason to know I need to be there right? Then I'll see it as my wedding, and I'll see it as my salvation. And I'll also recognize that I don't stop being church when I walk up the building, I continue to be church, right after it as much as I was before. I hope that answers it to some extent. I know it sounds theoretical, but it's not. If I ask myself those questions 
actually every week. Not just think about them, ask them and write answers to those things. Um, I think it'll change our mindset a lot and it'll give us a direction to move towards at the very least. Anyone else got some thoughts on ways to, to take God with us everywhere? Like, I, I actually really would love to hear how you guys go about doing that, not just, not just myself. Or not. <laughs> okay. Um, if that's it, then uh, we'll end with, with prayer and there's still the games right after. Um, uh, I'm going to um, make someone, uh, uh, Monica, I'll make you host, especially because of the games, um, because I'm going to restart my computer because on my end, it keeps freezing um, just that I can actually uh, participate. So I'll pray our father, I'll reboot and join um, and go from there. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We ask you, Lord, to hear us intercessions and prayers your Holy Mother, Theotoko, St. Mary, the great Abba Antony, St. Mina, and St. Pope Carlos VI, when we pray, thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those trespasses against us. Lead us not to temptation, but us from evil one in Christ, Jesus our Lord. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Love God the Father, the grace of the only God, Son, the communion gifts with you all. Those who wish to, to leave, go with in peace. Peace be with you.